welcome to the Mental Health Boot Camp Podcast. <laughs> this is the podcast where four mental health professionals, three of us from Canada, one of us from America, serve you cutting edge mental health knowledge. I am Dr. Ryan Howes, a clinical psychologist from Pasadena, California. And I'm Dr. Brooke Lewis, a registered clinical counselor from the greater Vancouver area. And I'm Joanna Boyd, a psychotherapist from Port Moody. I'm Chris Boyd, psychotherapist from Port Moody. Welcome, everybody. And allow me to express my condolences to you, members of the Commonwealth, at the passing of Queen Elizabeth earlier today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. She definitely lived a long life. 96. 96. It's incredible. And 70 years as, as queen. queen. That's yeah. remarkable. Did you ever watch the Netflix show, Ryan, The Crown? I did watch the first season, I believe. It, all the way yeah. through the first season where she became the queen. Yeah. Um, I think that dropped off my radar after that, but it was really good. It's good stuff. Yeah. I think it was a very well done show. And I, I personally learned a little bit more. I know that it's obviously not completely accurate, but there are definitely accuracies in it and um, learn more about how that all operates and the Royal family and how she became who she was. And uh, I think they did a great job with that show for any listeners who haven't seen it. It's just a slower paced show. So a heads up on that. Yes, the crown. Very good acting, though, and beautiful, beautifully shot and all that. Good show. But okay, so we got to talk about this the royal the royal family thing here for a second because complicated. Our, it's complicated, and I, I don't need to go. I don't need to. I'm not asking about your the whole history of it, and but as far as how it's viewed here in the states, we look at the royal family or. A lot of people look at the royal family as like, wow, that's it's actual, you know, it's uh, kind of throwback to the old age with queens and kings and, uh, you know, Disney princesses and <laughs> the whole thing. Like, it's a very kind of fantasy based or fanciful sort of thing. And there's, you know, there's the controversies that come up and it's always in the tabloids and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, I, but I wonder what, what is it like you as as Canadians, you know, you are part of the Commonwealth. The the Queen comes had come to visit and uh, other royals come to visit you guys once in a while and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But you're you know, you're a separate country, but you're still kind of with like how does that all work for you guys? Don't think much about it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I honestly it doesn't yeah, it doesn't impact come our daily up. lives. It doesn't impact our daily lives. Like I isn't she yeah, on your I, money? Yeah. No. Yeah. But who, who uses money anymore, you know? <laughs> She's on um, your Well, and middle names. My middle name is Elizabeth. Mine after too. the queen. Oh, I don't after know. If mine, I don't think mine's yeah. after the queen. After her grandma? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think uh, she's still the figurehead of our country, technically. Yeah. Um, but it's all it's like symbolic it's yeah they don't really have any control over the day-to-day operations of our country we have um governor general is that the right term sure who represents the queen in canada but again a figurehead position 
so she may uh, check some boxes when it comes to the transfer of power in our government and whatnot, but um, not really much power or say in, in the, again, the day-to-day -day operations of our yeah. government or lives. So when, so when Trudeau became prime minister, then yeah. you had to, then she had to like sign a box and say, yeah, that's, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. fine. Like, so, so like to um, formalize it, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah there's probably a decree of some sort. Yeah. Great Britain, you know, they have a new prime minister now. And, uh, and uh, so Boris Johnson had to go and ask the queen to dissolve the government. And then the new prime minister had to go and ask for permission to form a government. So um, Trudeau would do the same with the attorney or uh, governor general. I think it is um in canada but it's she's not gonna weigh in and say no you can't do that it's just a symbolic um type of position yeah there's controversy because i forget what her name is right now but often they rack up a lot of money and they <laughs> travel private planes around the world and represent canada and, yeah. and the queen and so often there's little rumblings about that is it really worth having these figureheads anymore you know mm -hmm. well yeah because it does seem like it's it is it's symbolic you say and kind of a figurehead thing there's no actual power there i mean i guess what's the value of having having the the british seal of approval on on stuff for you guys anyway because you're yeah. you're not beholden to them you know yeah so westminster like uh, britain has no control over what canada does we're a sovereign country they yeah. kind of gave us our, our sovereignty we didn't win it like you guys did um but uh Canada is way more diverse than it was before. So we had some really strong British roots and French roots, and, but I think we're a very different country today. So yeah. I bet you anything, with Queen Elizabeth passing away, as time goes on, there'll be discussion. I, I think there's going to be more discussion about maybe ending those the, the figurehead. Uh, Just my take on it, but you know. heard it here first, everyone. You heard it here yeah. first. <laughs> Canada secedes again from Great Britain. Yeah. They're out. Um, but yeah, I think they, a lot of Canadians, they, I think some, some have a bond to Queen Elizabeth. And yeah. Obviously, seven mm -hmm. years is a yeah. long time. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm not sure if they have that same connection to King Charles III. Mm hmm. Do, yeah. I know here, and again, I think it's, it's mostly for just like, uh, I keep saying like fantasy reasons, but it's like people put a lot of, idealize idealization into the whole um you know royal weddings and the baby being born and and you know people still talk about diana's death uh here yes and i think they do here as well like i think that was just there's so a, much around that there's yeah exactly so much around it but yeah. I, I feel like it's very similar like it's more of a symbolic family or role or what yeah yeah what people are watching or taking away or yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Figurehead. Yeah. It's really, that's really interesting stuff. I think, I mean, just, just the way that like the sociology of it all, like how, you know, Americans view it one way, but we have absolutely no tie, but uh, you guys view it probably a little different way. I mean, seeing, seeing her picture on your money that you apparently, according to Chris, don't use anymore. Um, you know, that's, that's significant. Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And in traditions, like, mm -hmm. you know, um, for instance, our, 
legally it's the crown is it represents the government right uh, or the legal yeah. side of things um crown land like we still use a lot of those terms a lot right mm. so you think government or federally owned is technically crowned um yeah so i think there's still a lot of influence there but huh but yeah. i don't think people think of the queen or the, the holiday family too Not often right? you know a queen holiday no. Yeah, but I, I think the queen was uh, technically the commander in chief of our military too. But again, <laughs> figure figurehead, right? Yeah. Wow. So. Oh. Well, interesting. And I know that for the next couple of weeks or maybe months, there's going to be a lot of news coming out of Great Britain with the whole transferring. I mean, I guess he's already king, but they're going to have to make it official and. A lot of ceremonies and a funeral and a lot of different stuff going on here, probably. So, oh, big mm-hmm. time. And then coronation after that, right? Yeah. 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 Well, will the uh, will the Canadian flag be flown at half mast? Probably already is. Probably already is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Parliament. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I would wonder if ours are. I mean, in in D.C. at the Capitol, maybe significant person yes well yeah yeah i think a lot of people speak very favorably of her a lot of heads heads of state and her temperament and uh, obviously very uh, intelligent woman and she's kind of a a boss lady right yeah she liked her hunting and her horses horses and dogs and oh yeah i haven't heard hardly anything negative about her at all um yeah, in the last 70 years have been pretty tumultuous. Yeah, a lot's gone <laughs> on. So for her to uh, navigate through that has yeah. not been easy, right? A lot of really difficult situations there. Mm-hmm. So it's come, out, come out of it looking pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. The rest of her family, there's some, you know, plenty of scandal to go around there, or at least uh, tabloid fodder, but uh, not much about Elizabeth. She's always been pretty, pretty solid. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, that's cool. Well, uh, the queen is dead. Long live the king, I guess, right? Isn't that how the saying goes? Yes. Yes. And also, by the way, the, the other piece of this is, is the monarchy, right? I mean, there's the, the next three are looking like males, at least, for, for Britain. And, uh, you know, to have a woman in that seat as queen for 70 years, I guess it's unprecedented. And there's going to be a lot of kings going forward. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I should know too. There's there are some people out there that are not super fond of the monarchy and imperialism. And I was reading a book on an indigenous chief here up here in Canada, and he calls yeah. the RCP the Queen's Cowboys, and uh, talked a bit about the history there and their depiction of of how they've been treated. So, Did you said uh, what were the what were the letters you said there? Uh, the Queen's Cowboys, so are the police officers, oh, the RCMP, RCMP, RCMP our Royal Canadian Mounted, Mounted Police, Mounted yeah. police right? I Basically, the police, yeah. Yes. So she called, uh, he calls them the, the Queen's Cowboys. Ah. And talked about uh, their his take, I guess. He, he doesn't represent all Indigenous people, but sure, the treatment from uh, the Crown over the years. So, not all sunshine and rainbows for everybody, but I think for us, our take on it is pretty. Pretty positive. I'm sure some mounted police still do use horses, right? 
Yeah, isn't sometimes ceremonially, right? Like you're all um, in the summertime in downtown Vancouver, there's these big firework display things. It's a, it's a, a competition between countries. So three countries compete and then the finale. So it's only four nights of fireworks. And there's, I don't even know, uh, I'm going to say 400,000, 500,000 people that all crowd down and on the Vancouver beaches to watch these firework displays. Wow. There's a lot of people just kind of like hoard down there. So in that type of event, then yeah, you'll see some of the police on horses for that. Um, the riots, there was like the SWAT team and the, like the people on ground, but there were also horses. Yeah. Yeah. So big crowd events, not unusual. Sure. But not at everything. Like the police aren't just riding around on horses. <laughs> right. And we have that sometimes as well. The Some, some yeah. police will be on the, on horses, but it's kind of a novelty, but uh, just the mounted police, it's kind of, it's part of the name, right? I guess at some point they mounted vehicles. So, <laughs> all right. So, uh, yes, very sad news, uh, but it will be a big part of the news cycle for a while, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. So, it's great to be back and here, able to serve up cutting edge mental health knowledge with you guys again. Do we have a topic for this evening? We do. No. We do. Okay, good. And that's Brooke. Woo! All right, Are Brooke. Ready? Are you feeling it? Curveball Brooke, come on. Are you ready for the ambush? Let's do it. Send it down. Brooke knows the question the three of us don't. So what is it going to be? Beep. We will see. Okay. We haven't actually done this yet. We haven't. This is a good one. Okay, everybody, here's the topic. <laughs> Eating disorders. What are they? Can you have an unhealthy relationship with food without an eating disorder? And, and I'll add to that, how, how do we treat it? Like, how, how do we? Yeah. What do just we do? Just kind of general. Right? I'm yeah. just going to say just unhealthy relationships with food. And we mm -hmm. can go from there. But yeah, like. Yeah, relationships to food, eating disorders, like that whole realm. Disordered eating. Disorder, yeah, disordered eating versus eating disorder. Um, all yeah. of it's kind of mushy, right? Like, how do you know when it's getting into trouble zone? What do you do? And what types of treatments are there? And yeah. Very, very good topic, Brooke. I'm, I'm surprised we haven't tackled it yet. And, and yeah. a very serious topic. Yeah. That, uh, as, as you guys I'm sure are aware, eating disorders are, are actually the, the most lethal of disorders that people have. They are. Do you know why, Ryan? Do I know why? Because no, I don't know why exactly. I mean, yeah. So it's um, more, more specifically, it's anorexia. Yeah. And what happened? So I, I took a short little course. It was called the medical management of eating disorders through local, local college here, that was many moons ago, but, um, and it was more medically based medical management, obviously. So what happens with anorexia is during the refeeding process, um, the body goes into shock. It's actually from the potassium and you go into cardiac arrest. 
Oh, so it's the, actually the, the healing or treatment of the eating disorder in that process that people can actually. Or in oopsies, even let's say this person just maybe hasn't been eating very much at all. And then what they did end up choosing to eat that day Mm. had too much potassium for the body, um, can send them into cardiac arrest. Wow. Yeah. And I know the body kind of reaches a point of almost a point of no return at some point. Like, yeah, there's a lot of, of physical and there's a big controversy around that of our eating disorders, actually a medical issue, not a psychological issue because there's so many physical considerations, um, what's happening for like internal medicine in, in the body. Ooh, this is a good topic. Yeah. I think I've like kind of steered away from it because it's kind of like a, area some people know and some people don't know and it's okay. not a general knowledge but i think we all have worked with persons who have an unhealthy relationship to food mm-hmm. um, or where we've questioned like is this going too far yep. and had those conversations so mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a complex topic because as you said there's a there's maybe biological components there are a lot of people who look at the psychological components of it it has, you know, um, different approaches to treatment, and uh, and yeah, there's there's a lot a lot to cover here. So we're gonna make this a three hour uh, podcast. Yeah. yeah, this can be part one. <laughs> uh, like yeah. sleep hygiene, we'll do another one. <laughs> Maybe not. We'll see what we can do here. Yeah. So what are? I guess I guess we could start with defining like dsm wise like what are eating disorders what are like they the current and the current ones and yeah yeah mm-hmm. i feel like you might be yeah i think you're probably best the best to one actually to break it down yeah. but or just what some of them are called sure oh. yeah or anorexia you mentioned uh bulimia binge eating disorder and yeah. and uh and another that I don't think is, I don't know if this is actually an official diagnosis, but orthorexia. Yeah, that's unofficial for sure. Um, and then there's like, I don't remember if it's still called EDNOS. So EDNOS is eating disorder, not otherwise specified. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's um, ARFID, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So previous to this DSM, it would have been like picky eating. But ARFID is like a refusal to eat certain foods because of textures yeah. uh, and different tastes and can be very, uh, yeah, very restrictive for people. I, I don't really like mushrooms. So is that, is that ARFID? No. No. Okay. okay. I think you would be a lot more extreme. Like you would very little be rejecting most things based yeah. on yeah. not the nicest sounding uh, acronym either arfid arfid yeah. can you quickly say what orthorexia is so orthorexia let's, let's, let's go back let's actually go back to the very to the beginning we'll go to anorexia what's that what's that uh and no, do, do you guys want me to go or do you guys want to yeah, go? go ahead brooke okay so anorexia nervosa um the acronym, like it would just be AN, you would see it like that a lot. And so that's kind of, that's characterized by 
typically low body weight, restrictive food, uh, an intense fear of fat or gaining weight is paired in there. I forget what else other requirements. Um, you're losing menstruation is in there. And I think there's a body mass index requirement where it drops below a certain thing as well to meet the criteria for anorexia. There is an anorexia type one and a type two. So um, off the top of my head, for whatever reason, I can't remember which one is which, but I'm pretty sure type one is just like straight anorexia. Type two is you're restricting your food intake severely. And then you actually like binge and purge, but it's not typical binge purge behavior. Mm -hmm. And that one, that's actually where you're getting really dangerous because the body is starving. So it's trying to eat. Mm -hmm. And then it goes, the body goes into shock and can go into cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. So it's a, like a mix. Um, but it's characterized by this intense, low weight, restrictive food, intense fear of fat or gaining weight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Loss of menstruation for three months or longer. Yeah. Okay. Interesting that you mentioned that a couple times because, um, of course, half the population doesn't menstruate. So it, but this, this is a, a disorder that has been seen more often, although not exclusively, but more often with menstruating people and uh, less so with the non-menstruating and female male, right? Yeah. 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 Or that's just one of them. So when, uh, and I think we've talked about this in other podcasts, but how these DSM diagnoses work is if you look it up, there will be like eight different criteria and it will say it, that the person needs to meet five of the eight. Right. So right. men wouldn't be meeting the menstruation one, but they might be meeting these other requirements. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which there are, people who have some difficulties with the DSM format in the first place, but that's for another podcast. So uh, how about bulimia? Go, oh, good. Chris, you got something? So what's the prevalence then for um, uh, females versus males? So my understanding is um, it's more prevalent with females, anorexia. Yeah, but whether or not that was because, like, were they testing males? Yeah, good point. And same with, um, there's like a misconception. So like I said, it's meeting a certain number of criteria. So somebody, um, or it's more aware of now that someone can still be struggling with anorexia without being like, uh, where their body hasn't reached that level of thinness because oh, they're gotcha. still, their body is actually still holding the weight, yeah. but they're not they're eating. They're in a, they're starving themselves. They're in a crazy caloric deficit. It's been going on yeah. for a long time. If it's a woman, maybe they're not menstruating. There's an intense fear of gaining weight. Um, yeah. So not all individuals not will be a certain body yeah. size. Yeah. yeah, it's often that a person with anorexia is going to be very very thin, but not always. Is there body dysmorphia typical with that as well? Mm -hmm. Okay. What's that? My understanding just seeing like your you see your body differently than other people would see it. So you might be like, I yeah, just look in the mirror and what you see, you might think there's different parts of your body, or I'm not thin enough or small enough. But when you know, logically speaking, you would actually be quite mm -hmm. small. So you just yeah, mentally, yeah, mm -hmm. your image of yourself is askew. Yeah. And that can go flip, like maybe not 
where you see yourself bigger than what you are. And sometimes for persons who are like bodybuilders, they see themselves as smaller than what they are. Like they think they think they need to build more muscle when they're already very muscular. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, I broke a rule and I cheated a little bit and I did a, a prevalence uh, search here from the National Institute of Mental Health, the lifetime prevalence of eating disorders. So this is the chance that someone will have an eating disorder in their entire lifetime across the population is 2.7%. So 2% of all people may have an eating disorder at some point in their life. Um, but for females, that number is 3.8%. And for males, it's 1.5%. So women are twice as likely to have a, uh, an eating disorder at some point in their lifetime than males are. So just a little something there. I don't want to get too into the weeds and the stats here because we're just having a conversation, but I just thought I'd throw that out there. Okay, so what's bulimia? I don't know a lot of the stats about it, but you essentially... Um you would be purging after you eat. So technically you'd be eating and then there's a common uh, thing where you would be throwing up your food afterwards. Um, is that a for sure marker of bulimia? The purging? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I just didn't, yeah. Purging um, can also include things like laxatives or uh, really strenuous working out. Yeah. There you go. That's another way to burn those calories off, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And often characterized like with some binging as well. The binge purge yeah. cycle kind of thing. Binge purge cycle and a binge. So a binge is also not clearly, super clearly defined, but a binge is when a person eats more than what would be considered like a normal amount of food in one sitting, but to a point where they have a sense of loss of control during the process and where afterwards they feel physically uncomfortable from the amount of food that they ate and so all binges don't look the same some are really super intense for people and other times they're less intense but that loss of control is really important so there's almost like a dissociation that can happen during that time mm. and then with the physical discomfort then that's where the purge comes in where it's not always about the, the fear of gaining weight from consuming the calories, but it could just be that the person physically, the body actually physically needs to rid some food. And, and this is where the emotions come in oftentimes too, I, I think, or from what I've seen, like it's someone is, uh, they're upset, they're feeling distraught about something and they, you know, grab the bag of chips or I bucket of ice cream or whatever it might be and just kind of, Boom, boom, boom. And they feel like, like, like you said, kind of compulsive. Like I can't stop. I've just got to keep going. And, and it's a, you know, some people would, would theorize that it's like a, a you know, distraction uh, measure, a way to, a way to kind of distract yourself from, from those emotions or um, to try to soothe those emotions, but yeah. physically they're not feeling it, but emotionally maybe it's working. Exactly. Which is the next, like another one is binge eating disorder. So that would be somebody who binge eats without the purging. Mm. So, and then there's like the uh, tricky line of like, when is it emotionally eating versus when is it binge eating? Because uh, it's very common for people to feel emotional and eat. Emotional yeah. eating is a thing, um, but binge eating would typically be an excessive amount of food 
so paired with a loss of control. Oh, okay. Um, and and again, that was going to be different for everyone. We have no. every Thanksgiving. We have one of those where people eat <laughs> eat until they're absolutely stuffed. Feels uncomfortable, but the food's so good. But it's 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 not you know, the the difference being that there's there's something. Oftentimes, it's it's secretive or it's something that's. Uh, being done um, as a response to an emotional issue that comes up or arises, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've certainly eaten until I was uncomfortable. <laughs> We've yeah, all overeaten. We all yes. <laughs> all overeaten. And that does not mean it's a disorder, right? And that's why it's, yeah, an important thing to talk about. I mean, we all need to eat. We yeah. eat every day, we eat multiple times a day. We want to have a healthy relationship with food. Sometimes we feel full. Sometimes we have sweets because we're happy. Sometimes we eat them because we're sad, whatever. Like yeah. it's, well, it's to normalize it. It's not that it's necessarily a bad thing, but we want to watch out for when it does become a problem. And that's what's, that's one of the most challenging parts of, of eating disorders for people is that we, we do need food. And I mean, yes. in, in people often will distinguish it from like, drugs and alcohol, like you can just abstain, or you, not just, but it's not that easy. But if you abstain from drugs and alcohol, your life will go on if you can pass the withdrawals and the cravings and all that kind of stuff. But you can't abstain from food if you're a binge eating person, right? Oh. You, it's, it, you still have to eat, but you have to find that moderation, that, that, that place and a different way to manage your emotions, right? Yeah. Or in the same with other tactics for let's compare that to alcoholism. Um, so, okay, you have a problem with alcohol. You don't go to pubs anymore. You don't go to the liquor store anymore. You have a problem with binge eating. You still need to get groceries. Yeah. You're going to have to face the triggers of the peanut butter aisle. That one's a very, very common binge eating food, peanut butter. And uh, you're still going to have to go down that aisle. So what are you going to do about that? Mm. It's tough. Yeah, and drop by the hundreds of different fast food joints and pizza pizza parlors. Sure. Yeah, or the treats in the office. Mm -hmm. uh, our office has lots of treats in the kitchen, at least. No, or, not lately, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and 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 what do we do when we want to socialize? We say, hey, let's go grab lunch. Let's go have dinner. Let's go. Let's go eat yeah. something together, right? It's yeah. such a common part of human connection. Is the the sharing of a, of a meal experience and Absolutely. that can be problematic for some folks. Yep. Yeah. Is there, do people tend to binge just the unhealthier foods though? Like are there, are there folks yes. out there that binge healthier foods? Um, I'm assuming that's uncommon, but how? I think uncommon? you would have to, I don't know what you're going to mean by healthier foods. Like I don't think it's very common for someone to binge eat like a Costco bag of carrots like that's not going to happen, mm -hmm. but people might binge by ordering takeout yeah. and large quantities of takeout. So maybe the individual dishes wouldn't be like eating out isn't always the healthiest, but that's not necessarily like candy bars or chips or yeah. whatever it might be. They might order three adult meals and eat it all in one sitting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I'm just trying to think if I feel like would someone be hard on themselves for eating a bag of carrots and be like, oh, there's a lot of guilt or shame involved with this versus certain foods that would maybe bring that on? Like, is that part of it? I don't know. 
because you, yeah, you're right. You don't hear about if someone mm. says they're eating only a ton of yeah. healthy food, you'd be like, Ooh, there might be an issue there. Whereas if they're eating a ton of unhealthy food tends to be more the case. Yeah. Okay. I, I had a friend who said that she decided to go on a carrot only diet and she started to turn orange. Yeah. There's a negative consequence. Oh, I don't know yeah. if that's true or not, but that's what she we said. know someone just ate a tremendous amount of celery and eventually uh, the body reacted intensely to it. Mm. To stop that, but really? Yeah. Is that I'll ask questions later. <laughs> Tell us more. No. Because <laughs> um, there was like the big, like, juicing of celery was like huge, like yeah. a few years it ago. It still is. Yeah. Like it was like a thing. Anyway. I think there's a reason why the fatty and, and sugary foods are a little. Burp, burp, because they give well, us that, and they give us that. Yeah, it releases neurochemicals. But I also think, from over the course of evolution as well, those foods were a little more rare to eat, right? Sure. So you're gonna, you're more likely to to eat more of those and binge on those um, because you weren't having it every day. You didn't have the same level of accessibility to those types of foods, right? Whereas now you can find them anywhere and everywhere. That's true. That's true, and it feels like a, a special treat to the to the body, right? Whether it's the fatty stuff or the sweet stuff, and it's like, oh, this is a special special occasion. Yeah, it might be more seasonal or occasional. Yeah, then it's back to other staples that you would probably eat on a daily basis. Yeah. Yes. Um, swinging back to whoever asked to clarify orthorexia, Joanna. So orthorexia is a preoccupation. We've been talking about binge eating and more like consumption of food, but the other side is this like intense fear of gaining weight, the anorexia stuff and orthorexia falls into that too. So orthorexia is a proposed eating disorder where it's a preoccupation with eating restrictive, healthy, naturally occurring foods with like, yeah, with like an obsessive, kind of tendency to, um, with this restrictive quality of only eating pure natural foods. Hmm. Um, and, a, a twist to it. Cause when I, when it first came out, I was like, so all of Vancouver, like we are, there's so much of like, yeah, healthy, natural, organic, everything. Yeah. Uh, and, but there's like a, what was the word that they used? Um, like a I'm better than you situation mm. involved in that for persons with, or that that's part of the criteria is mm. saying uh, I'm, I'm a better person than you are because I am eating in this way. Like so I'm so more holy or uh, there's like an ego piece to it. Like I'm, yeah, I am more pure than you because I am eating this way and you are not. So I am better. Mm. like there's there's a piece of that in there as well but uh, and that's where i get caught for unhealthy relationships with food when people i i don't think we should be demonizing any food group by any means i think moderation is key to life and we don't want to demonize foods but then we hear about these very restrictive um food programs that people decide to go on whether it's paleo or keto or carnivore diet or when there isn't a basis for your body. So obviously if you have, if uh, you have an intolerance to dairy, don't eat dairy, <laughs> you get that. 
but otherwise, why are we demonizing eating a potato? Why, why are there so many people that won't eat potatoes? I can't eat potatoes. So I'm one of those unlucky ones, but why are they so scary? I don't get it. Mm-hmm. That's unfortunate. You can't eat potatoes. They are a nightshade boo, boo. or if you were to take a look at, I don't know, naturally occurring grains. So oats or rice um, and how some plans, meal plans, if you don't have a medical condition, why are you not choosing to eat those foods? Like what, what's the fear there? What's going on? Like if oats are good, mm-hmm. rice is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sure. It's also a tremendous amount of information out there. Like uh, obviously we're not dietitians, um, but uh, nutrition does impact your mental health. And yep. we've got to be aware of these, these types of disordered eating. So I can go down the rabbit hole and, and have a decent grasp in terms of what is um, healthy for the brain and body. You know, they talk about it. We met at the symposium and often there's one or two presentations on that. And I swear a month or two after there's information that comes out that contradicts that information I just learned. Yeah. So it seems like it's, it's a constant. Um, there's just so much info. Yeah. And I, I genuinely, I like to know the purpose behind it for people when they jump into those types of changes in life. If you're going to decide to try keto or paleo or whatever, what is your purpose behind that? Is it aesthetics because you want to lose weight or is something else going on where um, you are out of breath when you're climbing the stairs, you're not sleeping well, you have sleep apnea. Um, If there's uh, skin issues, is there diabetes? Is there, what is going on that's prompting this change? And if it's only because you want to change your aesthetics. I think that's for me, a flag to say what's going on here. Like, is there something more beyond this? Certainly. Yeah. Is this health oriented or body oriented? Well, and, and that, that brings us to the both psychological, interpersonal and sociological pieces to this, right? The why? The why? Right. Why does this happen in the first place? Um, And, and I think one, one, we'll just go with the the low hanging fruit here. One place that, that at least when it comes to the restrictive eating or the binge, uh, the bulimia, um, oftentimes people point to societal standards, right? Like um, the ideals for, for, society, the people we see uh, in magazines and on TV tend to be slim and slender. And so a lot of people say, well, in order to be good enough or desirable or attractive or whatever that might be, I need to be thinner. So I will restrict the food that I'm taking in so that I can become a thin person. And people, you know, often talk about that or people who were teased as a kid for being a little overweight, uh, uh, decide, well, I'm going to take control of that. I'm going to not eat anymore, or I will eat in front of people, but I'll throw up in the bathroom afterwards. So I don't actually take in those calories. And the, the sociology of this, uh, you know, the social psych parts of this uh, tend to be um, people focus on that quite a bit, don't they? they sure do. Yeah. The social cultural piece, but then you also mentioned the, yeah, the experiences too, um, influenced by comments or bullying or, uh, even uh, a lot of family dynamics, right? Uh, I had a client I saw, a male, 
uh, last week and he has a bit of body dysmorphia and really fixated on certain elements of, of uh, his body, um, his stomach. And, but um, we're doing some EMDR and, and went back to certain um, experiences there being very judged and, and comments that were meant to be funny, but he um, really took to heart and, and uh, would actually, there's a, a turning point there where he would not take his shirt off anymore going to the lake or ocean or, um, not just uh, a towel to even cover the top part of his body, just because he was so fearful of what uh, the family members would say, right? Mm. So the experience, experiential piece is, is huge. But uh, trauma as well, right? Like trauma is a big is a yeah. big factor when it comes to eating disorders um, for a number of different reasons, but I, I see that that's often a factor there. Mm-hmm. So even self-hatred and not hating your body or, or just a sense of control, right? Don't feel that your life is out of control in lots of different ways, then this is one thing you can control. And that's that's what I hear. And that's something that some people feel it's, it's a little controversial, but but just in my in my clinical practice with some people who have struggled with particularly anorexia, um, the the, the challenge, the, the, the issue that they had is like, okay, I'm, I'm growing up in this household. I don't feel like I am in control of my bedtime or, you know, I have to do good at school. You know, I'm, I'm being controlled as far as my social life is concerned or whatever that might be. But here's something I can control. I can control whether or not I eat. And that's a, a big drive for, or has been a big drive for a lot of the folks I've known with and struggling with anorexia. It's like, I can control this. Uh, maybe I can't get my parents to give me a compliment, but I can, I, I can control how much I weigh. And, yeah. um, and so that becomes this one area. And that's, that's one of the things that makes this such a challenging issue to, to treat because it's like, I've, I've found this thing that I can control and I'm successful at it and no one else can stop me from it. Right. I, no one can make me or force that food down my throat. So um, I'm winning while at the same time, I'm kind of destroying myself. Yeah. Yeah. Except for it. Yeah. Doesn't always, somebody can actually force food down your throat because there is a point where you become hospitalized and then you have a feeding tube. Yeah. And I, I've, I've worked in those hospitals and had the people, you know, walking around the hospital with the feeding tube going down their, their nose, you know, uh, uh, intubated through their nose down their throat with, with insure or some sort of uh, high protein um, food. Sometimes they pull it out. Sometimes they don't like it, but, uh, but yeah, that can be like doctor's orders right there. Sometimes it's straight into the stomach as well. Hmm. Not even down, yeah, straight to the tummy. Yeah, those are extreme circumstances, yeah. Yeah, very, very, very extreme. But yeah, it's also very, so kind of jumping a little bit in the treatment part, anorexia is definitely one of the most difficult disorders to treat um, because without the nutrition from the food, the mineral, like for the brain, the vitamins and the minerals for the brain, um, the person's not able to think rationally or clearly. Like, so the rigidity of their thinking and the obsessiveness of their thinking increases. And it's very, very hard to pull them out of that. So it's a strong catch 22 
without the proper nutrients, mm -hmm. the brain's not actually able to do the work to get themselves out of it. Yeah, it's true. And so then it becomes more entrenched. So if I remember correctly, the neurotransmitters were released in our brains that, um, you know, like serotonin and dopamine and whatnot that help us feel calm and happy. They come from amino acids from food, okay? So if your diet is, is not healthy, then it really does impact your, your mental health yeah. and, and your cognitions, your ability to think clearly. Well, your brain's on survival mode. How's it supposed to do any other capacity, right? But even a, a lesser extent than that, like a lot of clients of me too, they say, oh, I feel really anxious or uneasy or agitated. And then you look at their diet and- It's often, off kilter. Yeah, off kilter for sure. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of research out there about just, yeah, gut health, gut oh, yeah. mind and yeah, connection, right? So if you're, what you're putting into your gut and the health of your gut will impact, you can, yeah. Our emotional health, mental health. Yeah, the gut biome. Yeah, yeah. lots of research coming out on that. Pretty interesting stuff, right? I guess we did our book study, book review one time on... On the one book, yeah. Yeah, you look back. I forget what the book was called, but we... A lot of that, um, yeah, mind-body connection there. Or mind-gut health connection. This I forget what it was called. Food. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. What was it called? This is your brain this on This is your brain on food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But. Yeah. I mean, if you wake up in the morning and your first thing is a, a Red Bull or a monster energy drink or something like that, then you go and have a high carb lunch and then you have, uh, you know, potato chips for dinner. You're probably not working at full capacity after a few days of that. Right. Which is so just on that note, too, so that if that is a normal diet for someone or if they're eating more than that. Um, just tapping into obesity. Oh, it's interesting. Obesity isn't really, that's medical, but there's, I think, huge psychological component to it. Probably some binge eating disorders or other eating disorders in there. Um, often persons who struggle with obesity are malnourished. Hmm. Interesting. Because they're not eating nutritious 10, they, they're not eating enough nutrient dense foods, often the foods that they are eating are uh, high in calorie, but low in nutrient. And so often persons with obesity are malnourished. Because you're, you're seeking out your body seeks out more of the nutrients. And so you'll just eat more and more and more. Exactly. But it's not actually nutritious. So you just end up eating these empty calories, huh? Exactly. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Um, intermittent fasting is a really big thing right now. There's been a lot of more research coming out on that. There's some TED talks on it. Um, so kind of curious uh, to get your takes on it. Obviously, we're not uh, um, dietitians or medical doctors, but but uh, there's some really interesting research coming out. So, any comments on intermittent fasting? Oh man. I personally don't know enough about it. I know people in my life who do it and they really like it and it benefits them, but I don't know exactly. Yeah. I, I know you have to be careful around your time of the month. If you're a woman, because you could potentially just, you're losing a lot of blood through your menstruation and you have to make sure that you're um, getting adequate food. But Yeah. I don't know a lot about it. 
Yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure on the research either. Um, but as with all of the diet things that are out there, intermittent fasting, keto, paleo, carnivore, whatever else there is, there's probably more out there. Um, Hundreds, I'm sure. Yeah, all of these different things. Or Atkins, remember when Atkins was a big thing? And, and vegetarian and vegan, like they're vegetarian all this, right? Vegan. Well, unless you have a reason, like obviously a medical reason to, yeah. or moral, moral, yeah, sure. for vegan vegetarian as well. Disclaimer on that one. But just, yeah. what it comes down to for me is rigidity, right? Like, so if you are intermittent fasting, we always have that, we have a phrase in our friend group, like, don't be a jerk about it. If you're intermittent fasting and you're at a birthday party and then the birthday cake comes out half an hour after your window and you turn down the cake because you're out of your window, like, don't be a jerk That's about a little it. Much. Yeah. Like you're being very rigid in that situation, right? And what what is the fear of you participating in a very normal life event if like what, what, what is your fear of doing that? Because that's actually not going to make you unhealthy. You're not going to all of a sudden gain 10 pounds. You're not going to develop, um, some sort of disease. Like if anything, you're, you're actually contributing to disordered eating by not contributing like not accepting that. Do you think there's a little bit of fear if I let myself slip, slip, then that's just, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to then delay, delay, delay. And it's just going to be a snowball effect for mm. me not sticking to this. And then and that could be with anything, not just food. Like that could, that mind could be for any routine or habit that someone creates for themselves. Sure. But, um, but I know what you mean with food specific. Does half food, an hour make it Yeah. Difference? Food specific, right? Like, yeah. and, uh, and the rigidity around that, because like, and then it goes back to my question of, well, what is your purpose of, of, participating in this way of eating or relating to food. Um, and is it energy? Is it aesthetic? Is it overall health? Is it whatever? And there is no magic pill. So if you're going to eat between these eight or six hours in the day, you're still going to be healthy if you eat in seven hours or nine hours. Yeah. Like I don't, the ultimate goal isn't, is, I, I don't know. It's a little bit different for me. I think in my mind. Yeah. I'm not sure yeah. someone's in that place. They might have their reasons for it. And it's, yeah. I don't know. I think the reasons are worth exploring. Yeah. I think the concept is you eat during a certain amount of time throughout the day. Right. So for instance, eight hours is a standard intermittent fasting interval. And then, uh, so you're not, you're supposed to actually eat a fair amount during that eight hour span. So you're not supposed to like have a major caloric deficit by any means, but I, mean, I did actually for a while and I felt actually, you know, it could have been placebo, but I felt my energy levels were higher. I yeah. felt, uh, you know, in terms of there's been studies done on uh, helping, it helps with blood pressure and blood sugar levels. And so I guess the theory is that maybe over the course of uh, evolution, maybe we ate in a more similar fashion to that. And we didn't eat three square meals because, you know, there's some, you know, people out there said maybe we're eating too much throughout the day, not burning off the energy like we, like we should, right? But, yeah. And every, but everybody is different as well. Like, so if it, I yeah. intermittent fast, I will pass out. Exactly. Like, so I think I, it has to be the right fit for the right individual. It's not going to happen. And you should probably talk to your doctor about that. 
um, which I have. And I didn't pass it by my doctor and said, hey, what have you heard about this? And do you think it'd be a good fit for me and let him weigh in on it? So, yeah. But would you be a jerk about it? Probably not. No, I haven't been a jerk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not saying that you're all jerks if you are sticking to your plan. <laughs> yeah. but it's, just, it's just a phrase, a, a, phrase, a phrase that we use in our friend group. Like, rigidity, I guess. Um, so. Don't be a jerk about it. And, it. and it doesn't mean like every night that you're doing something. It literally is, hey, I'm going to someone's house for dinner. And it's taking a little longer for them to make dinner. And now it's half an hour out of your window. Are you not going to eat dinner? Yeah. Because it's out of it. Like there's circumstances in life that we we want to be flexible about this yeah but from a mental and if you have anxiety towards that if you're like if there's anxiety towards that flexibility then that's a red flag for me but from a mental health perspective when it comes to these diets intermittent fasting included if it does increase energy levels and maybe helps your ability to get out there and have a balanced routine yeah. and impact your sleep in a positive way because um, nutrition can no doubt impact that, right? Yeah, but so, those are all very good internal, like internal reasons, intrinsic reasons mm -hmm. versus um, I want to have a better beach body. Yeah. Feeling, or I was bullied for weight and now I don't want to be this weight anymore. Yeah. Like we want the reasons to be health oriented and whatever works best for your body Yeah. versus being focused on the aesthetics. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Feeling healthy versus. And being healthy. You can get your blood work done. Yeah. There's like, in some ways there's a way. Yeah. You can find that balance. Right. Yeah. But anyways, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure. <laughs> Not sure. <laughs> Just went on a little back and forth there. You guys had a nice, a very interesting tangent there onto uh, the varieties of that. So. I find that as, as a clinician, and I don't specialize in eating disorders, and, and oftentimes if, if someone refers a, uh, like if, if eating disorder is like the main thing they're dealing with, I will often say, you know, I know a couple of people who are more specialized in that. Um, oftentimes in my work, though, I'll, I'll work with someone and find out, oh, it looks like, you know, binge eating is part of your, your deal or orthorexia is part of what you're coping with or something like that. But when, as a clinician, when, when someone brings up an eating issue or disordered eating, as you, as you might say, um, oftentimes what I'm doing is, is, is trying to figure out what that means to them, right? What is that, what is that about? What, what has food meant in your life? You know, oftentimes, because it all has a meaning, I believe. Um, for some people, food was always a reward. Like, oh, I get, I get to have, uh, you know, I did well in school, so I got to have ice cream or I, uh, you know, I, I, I was bad uh, that day. So I was sent to bed without dinner. You know, there's some, there's always some sort of meaning. Food has such a meaningful presence in our life that, uh, that oftentimes we need to dissect that and see like, what is, what is the actual meaning of food for you? And then what does this disordered eating, uh, wh how, what role does that play as far as uh, kind of rebutting some of those, those early messages? Do you guys find that? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it can go the other way as well of like restrictive food when you're younger Yeah, into potentially some binge eating or unhealthy relationships later on because, Oh, I, I was never allowed treats or ice cream or whatever. And now that I'm an adult, 
I can do that whenever I want. Sure. Uh, sure. And, you know, yeah, absolutely. A big, yeah. biggest example for me was my family was, was a family where there were, uh, where, um, like sugar cereals were never allowed when I was a kid in my house. Right. It was like, it was Raisin Bran or it was, uh, you know, plain Cheerios or something like that. And when I got to college, I was like, Fruit Loops, we can do Fruit Loops now or Lucky Charms or what is, uh, all the other things. You guys probably have different names for these or different types of. Those are all right. Yep. Horrible cereals. Up there. But I was like, yeah, I'm going to go for it. Now I'm a, you know, I'm a 18 year old adult. I'm going to eat all the chocolate cereal I can possibly eat. And I did that for the first term. And, and it was like, oh, this is <laughs> actually doesn't feel good for me. But but that was all a result of, of the restrictions that I had when I was a kid. And it felt like uh, almost a reward for me when I was uh, a young adult. And like, yeah, I'm breaking, breaking the chains of, of my childhood. I'm getting to have this now. And I think that's something that on some level, that, that same sort of template is, is placed on a lot of things when we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling bad. So I'm going to eat the whole pizza or I'm going to eat the whole thing of ice cream or, or whatever that might be. Um, and then maybe I don't like the consequences, so I'm going to throw it up. So there's, there's so many psychological components to this that, uh, that in therapy that we, we oftentimes find ourselves teasing those things out, don't we? Yeah, there's, um, there's, and there's, I don't know, there's things that would surprise you. Like I had one client who she wasn't eating and it got to a very serious point and I recommended they right away. I, I too will recommend on or refer on, but she wouldn't eat because she didn't feel she deserved to eat. Right. So there's another, you know, it's, it's sure. do enough or I don't feel worthy of being able to eat. And that was just a really big psychological thing, but her body was, they actually kind of really had to get her into the hospital for a few days and stuff. Cause it got to a point that how serious it was, but um, you know, it's easy for, and this was a teenager and it's easy to be like, okay, well, are you worried about body image and things like that? But that really actually wasn't the case for this girl. Mm -hmm. It was really about a, I'm not doing enough uh, or I don't deserve it. So it's just so interesting. Mm -hmm. You never know. And I've heard people not eating because it's just hard to swallow or a fear to swallow or like, you know, there's textures, all, textures, all sorts of things that could be at play for, or yeah, fear of throwing up. And so they don't want to eat because they might throw up and yeah, yeah. you just never know. Yeah. But I, I think there's often clues there stemming from an earlier time in their lives. Mm -hmm. Or there could be other things like this other girl, there's a lot of anxiety and things as well, or um, some OCD components as well. So anyways, yeah. it's, it's usually yeah. not by itself. Because anxiety often impacts the stomach, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of neurons around the stomach. So um can lead to feeling nausea or impact your appetite. So, yep. I, I had a but client who or not that would fall under eating disordered behavior or not could be in a different ball game too, right? Like if it's mm -hmm. loss of appetite due to anxiety, that's not necessarily disordered eating. Yeah. So, what were you gonna say, Ryan? Yeah. I was just gonna say I had a client who had a, a medical condition based on diet. And then, uh, and the, the, the procedures that, that had to take place as a result of that were, were so uncomfortable that they swung to the other pole so far that it was like, okay, now I'm going to only eat 
all these other things and, and had other complications as a result of that. Right. So it's, it's kind of back to what Brooke was talking about, like the balance and the, 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 the moderation there is, is so important, but, but so many times it's, it's about the fear of, or the anxiety about, and, you know, the anxiety about being ridiculed by other people or judged by other people or having to go through an uncomfortable medical procedure or something like that, that sends people to a, a really dangerous extreme that uh, is uh, that we as in therapy have to work with that. And of course, family of origin. So taking a look at what is the family history of relationship to food. Yeah. Like you said, Ryan, like was food treated as soothing or treats or um, does mom hide or dad, does a parent hide treats somewhere because treats are shameful. So we hide them and eat them in secrecy or we don't tell the other parent and like, what does that then do? Or uh, there is an eating disorder in, in one of the parents or both of them, and they might look different, right? What is the relationship to food in the house? Ah, such a good question, right? What was probably a good question for, for most of these eating disorder issues that someone presents with that is what was your relationship to food? What was, what was the relationship to food presented to you as a, as a kid? Yeah. And you kind of go from there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different modalities or therapeutic techniques that can support people with eating disorders. I think a lot of it is based on maybe the cause or trying to conceptualize what's going on there, but um, like, what are some of the main strategies? Like, so depending on the severity, um, if it's, if it's a formal eating disorder, then often you want like a multidisciplinary team on it because so much of it is medical. Mm-hmm. There's obviously the stuff that you're putting in your body and like there is chemistry and, yeah. and things going on. So you want a medical doctor involved and you want a dietitian involved, mm-hmm. um, to help with that process, stuff, yeah. right? Because it's a gradual re-entry into food. And then there's like desensitization and relaxation and like because the person is going to experience emotional anxiety from reintroducing foods that were deemed unsafe for whatever reason or like fearful foods this is for people who were restrictive but they're also for the restrictive people going to feel like mm, i don't know the like physiological anxiety not psychological anxiety when they start introducing food so because their metabolism is kicking on, yeah, they will physically, their system is going to feel a sense of anxiety without it even being psychological and how to work through that body discomfort. And during refeeding for persons who are restrictive, that because their systems haven't been digesting food, they go through like a crazy refeed process where they're intensely bloated, where they almost look pregnant. So you can only imagine what that does to the psyche, because here we are saying, Hey, you're not going to gain weight by doing this. And then their body changes because their stomach is distended because their system doesn't know how to digest food anymore. And so you're trying to help them work through that discomfort as well for more extreme cases. Right. Um, so yeah, a lot of anxiety management and reframing and relaxation and questioning and trying to keep them on track of their goals and their purpose and why they're making the change and encouragement and 
I'll, I'll say that this is also one where, um, and this, again, my, my experience is limited when I talked about the working in a hospital and people having the feeding tubes and that sort of thing. Uh, these were adolescents and oftentimes one of the best thing, one of the best treatments for them was family therapy because oftentimes with them, again, the, the not eating, this is, this is mostly anorexia. The not eating was a rebellion against the parents. And like, you can't force me, you, you know, you can force me to, to go to school, but you can't force me to eat. And so there were often these really important power <laughs> dynamics going on between parent and child. And, uh, and the child learning, learning that this is one way that they can have power. I can, I can have control over my parents by not eating. And then, you know, you're worried about me and you have to spend money on me and, and medical treatment and the control component of that. So if you get them actually to work through some of those initial critical issues, and again, this is not everybody with a eating disorder. This is just the, the ones that I'm, I was familiar with, uh, at this point, but it could be very helpful to have families talk through some of these issues and through some of those dynamics and be able to, to kind of uh, extinguish some of these control problems that were um, maybe some of the source of the, the eating disorder for, for some of these people. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of different treatments based yeah. on, depending on where this is coming from sure. exactly. and age of life that they're in right? Um, somebody in their twenties, thirties, forties, whatever age probably doesn't want their family to come in, even though that could be helpful. They probably don't want that to happen. So then what do we do? And that depends on what, what purpose is it serving? So I like the magic question, like if I wave the magic wand and I give you what you want. So if it's weight related, you're the magic weight, whatever that number is, poof, you wake up tomorrow, you're that weight. What's different? What's fixed? What's better? Um, or I have the magic wand and it goes the opposite direction. What's the worst case scenario? What's going to happen yeah. if you don't yeah. achieve that and, um, kind of poking around a bit so that we can actually see what it's about. Cause often it's not about the food. It, yeah, I often, it, it, it's mostly not about, in my experience, it's never about the food, mostly not about the food. It might be, you know, it's, it's, it's rarely about the weight unless we're talking about some, something about uh, a health risk. It's usually about some, something else going on internally or societally or relationally. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Poor management to stress. And so it's like a stress reliever or yep. some trauma that hasn't been dealt with. And now it's a bit of a trauma response. It's a way to dissociate. It's a way to self-soothe. It's um, some people with obesity, it's an armor. So if there has been abuse in the past, sexual abuse in the past, then it's a protective armor. So they're, they won't be abused again. Mm -hmm. And you can, that's, that's a hard one to battle, right. To try and change that psyche, especially if it happened at a young age. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's true. Ah, uh, great stuff here. Anything else we need to cover regarding eating disorders? I don't know that we've answered all of our questions, but we've kind of big topic. It's a good topic. It's a big topic and a good topic. Well, I feel like we've at least opened, opened the cans of worms and maybe our listeners will, uh, have some things to think about and, 
uh, chew on. Uh, but if, if you have a concern about an eating disorder in your own life or someone else who has uh, maybe some, some disordered eating, uh, we would certainly suggest consulting a mental health professional for that. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's uh, like we said before, it's a, it's a, it's a serious condition. It's something that uh, has more health ramifications than, than a lot of other things we talk about. So it's good, good to talk about that. So let's, we'll wrap up for now, right? And we'll say uh, like and subscribe on Apple, Google, Podbean, Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. Send your questions to our Facebook or Instagram pages. Tell a friend or two and good night and God save Queen. Good night, everybody.